Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. We made it through another week. It is Thursday, September 21st, 2000. 23, this is Canada's most irreverent talk show. Although I should say, if you're not careful and you're typing it out, autocorrect will sometimes shift to irrelevant. But no, I'm not Rosie Barton. This is not CBC. We are highly relevant and very irreverent at times, which every now and then some people uh, take issue with on our side of the spectrum. And they say, well, why do you want to be irreverent? And I would say because we challenge the orthodoxies of our era, which right now, as we saw last week, so very much need to be challenged. I, not that last week, yesterday, I guess I should say. Uh, speaking specifically of the Million Person March, which I was very proud to be part of the True North team in covering. It was easy for me because I like did it from here, but Harrison Faulkner was out there in the midst of the uh, protests in Toronto. We had Ellie Kenton Nantel in uh, Ottawa. We had Cosman Georgia and Lindsay Shepard out in British Columbia at the Vancouver one. We had uh, other folks uh, from our team at, at various points. I realize that you can't list everyone, so you have to not list most because if you list most and not all you offend like the one person you left out so uh, apologies if i did that to any of my own colleagues here but uh, the reason i bring that up again is because and i would stay tuned to true north on this there's going to be a bit of a wave as we're seeing of really unhinged reactions and breakdowns of what happened there as the media really just distills this down into an inaccurate and very unfair caricature of the people that were there and it's just like i was talking about when you have union activists that are saying it's far right and racist and then you like pan to an image of a bunch of like happy muslims and sikhs that are saying you know love diversity children it's like oh wow they're uh the, the face of white supremacy is a little weird right now but that is the way the media is framing this uh we're going to be talking later on in this show with Dominic Cardi, who is an MLA in New Brunswick and the interim leader of a new political party that posits itself as a radical centrist voice in Canadian politics. That is the party that was created by the folks behind Center Ice Canadians. It is called Canadian Future. We'll speak about what that is and what it is they're doing in our political landscape later on. Also, Trish Wood will join us for a wrap-up of the third week of the Tamara Leach and Chris Barber trial, which is coming to an end in the next couple of hours here in Ottawa. But first, I want to talk about Justin Trudeau's visit to the UN. I know, I know, it's like the epitome of dog bites man. Justin Trudeau goes to UN. I think if he had his way he'd be able to spend all his days at the UN and Davos and not have to worry about the pesky parliamentary process in Ottawa but Justin Trudeau went back to the House of Commons for one day he was there for Monday and then like hightailed it out of there so quickly to hitch his plane or hitch a ride on his plane to New York City where he's spent a few days reveling in the world of sustainable development goals at the United Nations. Now, uh, Trudeau has done this in a way that we shouldn't be all that surprised by. Let's be real here. He's going and not talking about anything dissimilar from what he talks about when he's here. But I want to just begin by setting the stage for this, because this SDG consortium here, presided over by the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, sounds all nice and benign, but it really isn't. This is a clip from Secretary General Guterres. Eight years ago, member states gathered in the hall to adopt the Sustainable Development Goals. 
with the world watching, including 193 young people in the balcony holding blue lamps of hope, you made a solemn promise. A promise to build a world of health, progress and opportunity for all. A promise to leave no one behind. And a promise to pay for it. Oh, yes, that's the key caveat there, saying the quiet part out loud. The countries didn't just agree to the vision they want for the world, they agreed to pay for it. But that means that they agreed for us to pay for it. They often leave out that last part, which is that Canada is not paying for anything. Canadians are paying for things. Now, Antonio Guterres, a literal socialist, is the guy that gets up there and talks about how the world's burning and the only thing that can save it is if everyone comes together and does his bidding and that of the United Nations agenda more broadly. Now, this is an agenda that your prime minister, our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, has all too willingly adopted. This is a, uh, a little quote from him talking about how the SDGs are pretty darn important. Co-chair of the Secretary General's SDG Advocates, why are the SDGs so important to you and for Canada? Well, I think they're just important, period. Uh, what we're seeing right now everywhere around the world is a level of anxiety about the future that I don't think we've ever seen at this level before. I mean, whether it's the real impacts of climate change that are increasingly felt by everyone, whether it's uh, the spreading of conflicts and instability in terms of food, in terms of energy all around the world, uh, whether it's the pandemic that knocked us all for a loop, people are worried. And people are worried that they're you know, going to be able to offer a better future to their kids. Uh, and that's not obvious, even in wealthy places where that had always been the story, um, people are really not certain about the future. So showing that as a world we can focus on the basic building blocks of success the 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 sdg goals are what is necessary to create a successful planet full stop over the coming decades not just a list of nice-to-haves, they are necessary. That was a comment in an interview in March. It dovetails on this other one now, where Justin Trudeau is lamenting that uh, we're off track on these things. We're not doing enough to meet these. Members have pointed out the 2023 special edition of the SDGs report is sobering. The fact that nearly 50% of SGD, SDG targets are moderately or severely off track is alarming. We need an immediate course correction and acceleration of progress. But as many have said, it's just half time. We can do this. We can do this. We, we can, we really, really can. I really mean it, we can do this. These SDGs, let me just take a step back. These are 17 goals that United Nations member states all came together in 2015 to agree on. Now, I should say, to point out the elephant in the room, it was a conservative government in Canada that signed Canada onto this at the same time they were doing the Paris Climate Accord. And I know this is a criticism that you often get from notably PPC supporters to 
towards the conservatives. And it's a fair criticism. And, and the only real argument that you could use to defend this is, well, it's just what every country does. That like that's the only real defense. Well, we just went along with it and you know, we didn't really mean it, but we said what we had to do. And if you look at the website for the SDGs, they're remark I mean, they're very seemingly benign. Number one is no poverty. Well, who's going to stand up and say, well, I actually, you know, I know it's not politically correct, but I like poverty. Uh, the second is zero hunger. I, I hate being hungry. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making light of it. There is a very serious hunger issue in the world. I do not like that people are going hungry. Number three, good health and well-being. I am in no position to lecture anyone about this, but it is a very good goal quality education. Most of these things are very normal and acceptable and palatable things. The problem, of course, is when you drill down and look at the mechanisms that the UN believes are necessary to get to this point. For example, uh, we look at, uh, let me just pull up the number here, uh, 13, goal 13 is climate action. There is obviously going to be a significant bit of politicization here. It's take urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts. You look at the targets and indicators and 13.2 is to integrate climate change measures into national policies, strategies, and planning. So this means that when countries have signed on to this, they're not just signing on to the theoretical goal of ending hunger, ending poverty, ending climate change. They're committing themselves. It's not binding, but they are choosing to bind themselves to this pledge to integrate measures into national policy strategies and planning. And I share that with you so that you have the context for what's happening when Justin Trudeau gets up there today and makes this call at the UN. We all know that pollution has a cost. We're seeing that every day. But together, we can make sure that pollution has a price, too. In Canada, our price on pollution not only ensures big emitters pay their fair share, it also returns money collected directly to families through rebates. In fact, the rebates put more money in people's pockets than the vast majority pay into the system. So here he is, first off, blatantly telling a falsehood about the nature of the carbon tax. If I mean, the way he describes it, we all make money from it. Like, did you know that? That you actually make money from the carbon tax? That uh, when you have to pay more for groceries and pay more for gas and pay more to heat your house, that you're actually coming out on top? Because that's the argument he's making there. When you get that little piddly climate action payment or climate action incentive, as they used to say it, uh, that's supposed to just make you forget about everything else. So, uh, Goody, the carbon tax is actually a great gift to us. Well, if people are making more from this, how is it doing all the things the government claims it's going to do and claims it's doing? It's not. But here's the problem. The carbon tax is one of the single biggest contributing factors right now to the rising cost of living that is directly within government's control. Inflation has a government role, yes, but the carbon tax, the government could literally flip a switch and the prices on all of those things the carbon tax affects would go down. And then the indirect costs, for example, the price of shipping a cauliflower to your grocery store, that trucker had to pay more in carbon tax to get the fuel. That is an indirect cost, which would come down conceivably as well. But he is now calling for every country around the world to follow Canada's lead at a time when global inflation 
is pushing more and more people into poverty. He gets up there and says to the UN, uh, you know, forget about the fact that people in my home, in my home country are losing their homes and can't afford to buy groceries. We all need to do this. We all need to learn from Canada's example right now. And this is the problem. The SDGs uh, get a bit of a conspiratorial rap sometime. Canada is not beholden to these things. Canada agreed, but Canada still has the authority to decide what policies it wants to enact. The problem with Justin Trudeau is not that he's bound by these things. It's that he wants to be bound by these things. He's actually the great evangelist for the Sustainable Development Goals. I, I don't know if it's possible to put a screenshot of it up, but if you saw that clip that I just played from uh, Justin Trudeau speaking, he's wearing a pin that looks like a Trivial Pursuit board with, you know, the little colored pie wedges. Well, that is the official logo of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Each one of those wedges represents one of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. So you go up there and wonder, why is this guy wearing, why is he, when did it go out of vogue to wear a Canadian flag when you're representing Canada at the United Nations? Because when Justin Trudeau speaks at the United Nations, he is not Canada's representative in New York. He is the United Nations representative to Canada. And that is such a crucial point here, is that he wants to represent the global community, the so-called global community in Canada, instead of representing Canada itself, which should be his job. And that's one of the great contrasts between Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau. Uh, we have that image up. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't recall Stephen Harper ever wearing that Sustainable Development Goals pin. Now, admittedly, he was out of office not long after the SDGs were cemented. So maybe the UN branding department hadn't made the pins yet. But I don't think he ever would have worn a pin like that. And I may have told this story previously when my producer Sean and I were walking around in Davos, you'd like walk up to someone and you'd say, oh, wow, this uh, guy must work for the UN. He's wearing that UN pin. And you look at his name tag and it's like, oh, that's Brad Smith, the CEO of Microsoft. Like, wh why is he wearing a UN pin? Shouldn't he be representing Microsoft? Why is Justin Trudeau wearing a UN pin? And these things are incredibly important for people to take note of here because uh, we have as a country national sovereignty. The United Nations, people who defend it against critics will say, well, hang on, the UN doesn't have an agenda of its own. It only has the agenda that is given to it by its member states. That's kind of true. I, I would argue it's untrue when you look at how the UN Secretary General takes such a prominent role in shaping discussions and when the UN is putting out policy resolutions and agendas and all of that. But at its core, Canada could look at this and say no. Canada could look at this and say, you know what, screw this. We're representing our national interests. And yes, we're committed if we can be a part of the solution to reduce hunger and reduce poverty and all of that stuff. But we are not going to bankrupt our country because all of these people are clinging to, you know, UN SDG number 13 as being some trump card over sovereign countries and their national interests. And uh, it's really interesting because you look at these discussions and you'll see like the head of the Maldives or the head of Tuvalu get up there and say, we're drowning, we're drowning. Everyone needs to have a carbon tax so we can uh, get rid of this. And then you look at these ribbon cuttings they're doing for these waterfront resorts. And you're like, well, you know, if you think your country is going to be underwater, maybe you shouldn't be investing in waterfront property. There's a little bit of a a little bit of an issue there that I have in understanding the logic and rationale 
behind this. So that is, thank you for coming to my TED Talk, as we say. Uh, we will move now to a story that's been brewing in Ottawa for now three weeks. It is the criminal mischief trial of Tamara Leach and Chris Barber. And what's interesting about this, we haven't been able to cover it from the courtroom because I, you know, can't broadcast live from, you know, courtroom number three or whatever they're in. But we've been keeping an update and I've been keeping tabs on it. And there's been some great reporting that's been taking place. Uh, some of it from Robert Krychuk of uh, Rebel and also from Trish Wood, who we had on alongside Jacqueline Vine in a couple of weeks ago about a documentary they're putting together on Tamara Leach called The Trials of Tamara Leach. But I wanted to bring Trish Wood back onto the show for a bit of an update on how things have been going. Trish, good to talk to you. Uh, this week has been a bit interesting because we've seen uh, some doublespeak from one of the witnesses from what he said during the Public Order Emergency Commission and what he's now saying in the prosecution of Chris and Tamara. What's going on? Well, it's quite interesting because, well, let me just say um, you're lucky you're not covering the trial because it's one of the most boring things I've ever been involved in as a journalist. And most trials, as you know, Andrew, are full of drama. They create their own culture. They create their own stories. Remember OJ and, you know, if the glove doesn't fit, you must quit and all that wonderful stuff that happened. This trial is a huge drag on one's attention. I mean, maybe it's the, you know, the the airflow problem in the courtroom or something along those lines, but generally it is a case, the Crown's case is a case in search of a narrative. The Crown has not explained in any sensible way exactly why he's leading the evidence he's leading in the order he's leading the evidence he and she, he has a second chair, young, young woman he's leading. And, and the whole thing has turned into, and I don't want to be disrespectful to the court. I, I quite like this judge. And I, I've said so before. I think I said so the last time I was on, she's pretty interesting, tough, smart, doesn't miss a, a trick and is managing a whole bunch of really crazy stuff that's going on quite well. But I, it, it's becoming a big kind of evidentiary blob. You know, you, you're, you're not being trained as, they, as a good lawyer will kind of put it out day after day to start thinking about the case in a certain way. And you're like, oh, yeah, well, that could, you know, that maybe that could be true. Maybe they did do it or maybe they didn't do it. It's just kind of throwing spaghetti at a wall and hoping it's going to stick. That, that feels like what's going on. And I don't get it. I do know... Uh, I'm sure you know, too, that this is not the first crown. This is not the original crown mm -hmm. um, that he was removed. And I don't exactly know what happened there. I, I know that he was pretty zealous and was seen to be zealous, which is not necessarily a good look in a trial that's already being accused of being political. So they brought these two in. Uh, Tim Radcliffe is the, the lead chair. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a last minute thing. Maybe they're just not up to speed on their own evidence. But I am not hearing anything bad about Chris Barber and Tamara Leach day after day after day after day. I mean, it's kind of crazy. And and I don't think even like I, I've been following Canadian press a little bit because they've been sort of OK. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think even the people who are inclined to look at Tam, mainly the, the the legacy media, the people who are inclined to look at Tamara and Chris in the worst possible way, even they're they're playing it kind of straight because there's not really anything going on. The nub of it, I think, is the phrase "hold the line," and how will that be interpreted, and what did it mean, and what did it mean when various people said it. I also think it will be about at the end of the day, 
uh, the interpretation of the phrase mischief, because that can be legally interpreted multiple ways too. But we don't even have a framework of, of language in this case yet. So it's a really, really strange thing to be participating in sitting there in the gallery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just to talk about the pace of this, there were initially 22 witnesses the Crown was planning to call. Yeah. I believe there was talk about adding more, but just Maybe. for context here, we are about to wrap up the third week of trial. There are, under the original schedule, three days left, yeah. and they've gone through three witnesses. <laughs> Yeah. So here's what's going on there. Aside from the fact that the witnesses are not saying anything inculpatory about They're taking Chris, a long time to say nothing. Is that they're the taking case? Long, well, they're not even saying bad things about the, the the defendants, right? Which you would think the crown witnesses would be. But but um there's a lot of procedural stuff that, that I don't quite understand. And I look, I, I give trials are really, really hard work, Andrew. I mean you you, you're in trial all day, on your feet, working really hard, and then you go home at night and you prep more. I, it's a really tough gig for both sides, actually. So I have some sympathy for them. But what I don't understand is why the Crown Attorney, primarily Tim Radcliffe, uh, who is the lead chair, um, was not better prepared because a lot of the reasons that we're seeing this slow going with the witnesses is that simple rules of evidence don't seem to have been being adhered to. So we'll just get going and they'll get three questions and answers out from one of their witnesses. And then there is an objection, which the defense is perfectly entitled and should be doing on behalf of their client. And then a long, long discussion on simple things. Like I know with, um, with Mr. Ayotte, who's on the stand now, uh, one of the issues was, did he have notebooks? What notebooks did, can buttress what he's testifying to in court? And my understanding from from when I was there the other day, is that he didn't have any. So that then becomes a big thing. How do you know what you know? And how do we know that you're saying what you actually know? You know, like there are reasons that they do all these really specific things, these rules of evidence in a trial, and they don't, it's not that they're not being adhered to. That's maybe not a fair thing to say. That would be perhaps for an appellate court to sort out later. But they seem to be coming to Mr. Radcliffe as a bit of a surprise. So I don't know if 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 Justice Perkins McVeigh is being a stickler or if there really is something hinky about the way they are bringing the evidence to court. And some of it makes, you know, the complaints about it make sense to me. Obviously, if you're defending your client, you need to know exactly what the Crown's going to lead so you can prepare your defense and your, you know, arguments. I mean, court really is about arguing, right? Mm -hmm. And in order to, to prepare yourself, you need to know what they're going to lead and whether it's credible and where they got it and all that stuff. And that didn't seem to be being happening. So this is dragging. And I will say that the, the judge is saying that, you know, she looks kind of irritated at times and not yet irritated with defense. Now they're not leading evidence yet, but but uh, she does seem somewhat irritated with the, with this crown and with the process. No one wants this. No one wants to be a judge in charge of a proceeding that's sort of crawling along. The eyes of the country, you know, are on this. Yeah. And um, I, you know, I'll say this, Andrew. I'm not a purely objective observer. I was a journalist long enough to know that I, you know, I do have sides a bit in this. I can sort out truth from from non-truth, but I I do wish these charges hadn't been laid. And I, you know, I kind of favored the convoy. I think people know that. But uh, putting that aside, I feel like everybody involved in it, including the, the judge, wants 
this case to be decided on the facts as they're presented, whether you think the charges should have been brought or not. And uh, I think it's going to be really, really difficult for the Crown to prove its case in this. Maybe, you know, maybe that's wishful thinking on my part, but yeah, I, I'm not but I mean, hearing some it. Of the, some of the clips that I was told were played earlier on in this trial had nothing to do with Tamara Leach and Chris Barber. And, and you know, it's funny because the Crown made a point of saying early on in his opening remarks, you know, we're not, this is not trying them for their political beliefs. And I yeah. believe he had also made a comment about it not being about the convoy itself. Yeah, yeah. And Yet his case has involved trying to basically put the convoy on trial. Well, you almost, I almost want to put my hand up and say, Mr. Radcliffe, so why, why did you lead that clip? What am I supposed to glean from that? Because I'm yeah. not, I'm not getting it. There was a guy on from the Surete de Quebec. This is how kind of absurd some of the evidence is. And he was part of what they were calling the green squad. And if you remember when they brought the convoy down. And, and by this time, bear in mind, Tamara and, and Chris had already been arrested. They weren't even there. This was- Yeah, they, uh, just for, for the audience to be aware, they were arrested before the major police operations mm -hmm. took place. So, I mean, mm -hmm. anything that happened after that point, I mean, yes, it, you could argue maybe they had encouraged it before, but they weren't there. They weren't involved. They were in a cell. They were in a cell. Yeah. So, so the Surete Quebec is doing this, I guess it's called a clearing operation, or at least that's what the military calls it. And then he was with the green squad. And there was a point where he's kind of talking about what they're doing. You see this, I believe it was body cam footage. And this is kind of heartbreaking too, that here are these far right, you know, terrorists, according to some people, including legacy media, all these guys kind of military age guys, uh, chanting love over fear right they're not misbehaving they, they, they are they're standing calm and true and chanting love over fear in the face of this really overpowering police presence i think at that point the police were behaving as well i'm not not dumping on them but here they are they're all on their black block and it's you know very scary and we don't know what's going to happen and then there was kind of a moment where this um this uh, police officer from from the SQ says, well, and then we went for lunch. <laughs> and so, of course, the defense counsel, Lawrence Greenspan, says something like, well, you went for lunch. So so there's this big moment of we've got to, you know, secure the area from these scary people, but we're going for lunch. So, I mean, there, there are moments that maybe are not like intended to be really representative of what's going on, but they actually were like, it wasn't, they weren't so scared that they couldn't go to the Chateau Laurier for lunch. He clarified he wasn't eating at the Chateau Laurier. No one can afford that. They took their lunches to the Chateau Laurier. So that's the kind of stuff we're seeing, right? I mean, I haven't seen anything in the videos that did anything but really uh, act as exculpatory evidence for the defense, except there are ch chance of hold the line. I know that's going to be discussed forever and ever, but it is showing um, some pretty, how can I put it, subdued behavior on behalf of the protesters. And I, I don't know if you remember this, if I said this on the last show, but when they first started showing these, these videos and you're like, oh, what's going to be in them? They're going to be so terrible. And, and what happened was the, the protesters looked pretty responsible, but also in these clips, there were photographs and images of the police beating protesters in the head. And, mm. and, and the judge noticed that, you know, she noticed. So whatever they're leading, it always seems, it's kind of like, dare I say, um, 
the Roadrunner and the Coyote, like they keep <laughs> dropping the anvil on. I, maybe I'm overstating it, but. Do we no. know when they're going to settle the trial schedule itself? Just to get back to the housekeeping side of this, because yeah. I, again, the dates that were originally planned, they were going to, I believe, run tomorrow as well. I, 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 they weren't running Fridays, but I believe they're scheduled to go tomorrow. And then they were going to take a two week break and finish off October 11th to 13th. And I know they've talked about needing to add more dates. Has that been settled yet? Not as far as I know, but I came back yesterday, so I don't know if there's been movement on that. I I get the sense that they've still got a long way to go with this. And, and, and it's also interesting, too, because covering it then becomes a problem, right? It costs money to be in Ottawa. Yeah. You know, I'm paying hotels, I'm la, 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 as you all know. And you're like, nothing's really happening. You're waiting for the big trial moment. And nothing is happening. It's all almost all procedural. None of it's making very much sense. And you kind of go home at the end of the day thinking, man, what am I going to write about? So I've been writing about how bumpy the train ride was going down to Ottawa. <laughs> I was writing about other trials I've covered. I mean, there's not all that much to say. And yet, this is a massively important trial in Canadian history, isn't it? And if they are convicted, then we better know why it happened. And that's essentially why why we're all there and still kind of hanging in with something that even a lot of the protesters have disappeared at their board too. Trish Wood is the host of Trish Wood is Critical and uh, you should always follow the work she does because you are never going to be disappointed if you do. Trish, thanks so thank much you. as always for coming on. Thanks, Andrew. Have a good day. Bye. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I mean, I had initially planned to go up for the last few days. I figured I'd sit in for closing arguments, come out, do my show, go back into the court. Now I don't even know when the final days will be. Like I could uh, go up for October 11th to 13th. And actually my birthday is the 14th. So maybe I'll just spend my birthday alone in a courtroom in Ottawa or something. But uh, the, the reality is this is not going to be a particularly enjoyable uh, experience if this goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And as Trish says, they're not really getting anywhere with it. So uh, that's the point of it. I know we get periodically people asking, why are you not covering the, uh, we, we are covering, but you know, you can't film in courtrooms uh, nine times, well, actually like 99 times out of 100 in this country. So this is one of those ones where we have to just pop in uh, from time to time. But I do want to talk about this story that came about this week, which is a bit of a deviation from what we've been talking about the rest of the show, which makes it a good note to end on for the week, a new political party. Now, I should say that there are a great many political parties in this country. You've got the Communist Party, the Marxist-Leninist Party. You've got, I think there was a marijuana party at one point. So you've got a bunch of parties that don't really uh, do anything and are kind of just existing on paper only. And then you have parties that come on and they want to make a splash because they feel they are filling a void that the status quo is not addressing. And that is what this new initiative seeks to do. It is a party formed by the folks behind Center Ice Canadians, which was formerly Center Ice Conservatives. It is called Canadian Future and is being led in the interim by New Brunswick MLA Dominic Cardi, who joins me now. Dominic, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. 
Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. So let me just ask first and foremost, I know this is being presented as a centrist party, which is a a term you often hear kind of appropriated by both sides. Do you view this as a party for conservatives that don't like Pierre Polyev or or liberals who don't like Justin Trudeau? Oh, we'll take we'll take both and lots of other people who are fed up with politics in general. We've had some support coming even from from uh, other parties because there's, a I think, a feeling that we've ended up with kind of a mushy politics where you've got this kind of sterile debate about left versus right based on a 200 plus year old uh, idea about how we should run our economies. We've got 100 plus idea, years now of ideas and evidence about how to run mixed economies. We know that's generally what works. To me, the big fight right now is about do we have an open society or a closed society? Do we you know, fall in line with the models of government that we are seeing pushed by the Chinese and the Russians around the world, clearly trying to influence Canada directly and indirectly? And do we have a party based on evidence? Because I think that's something that uh, all the parties have slipped away from as the, the years of sort of left-wing postmodernism made truth somewhat relative. And that's uh, now being a mantra embraced by the right, where we have, unfortunately, Mr. Polyarv out-campaigning Max Bernier, talking about the World Economic Forum and how apparently it's running our lives, which is got to be one of the daftest things I've ever heard. And I'm getting kind of fed up of people saying that Canadians aren't responsible for what happens in Canada. We're not subject to shadowy foreign influences. We're a sovereign country. We can make this place better. We built it. We can fix it. Oftentimes when people call themselves centrist, they they usually kind of cloak it in saying they're fiscally conservative and socially liberal, which I find is somewhat counterintuitive because it still sort of falls into that left-right uh, dichotomy here. It, it, how do you define what a centrist is in the context of, of what your party seeks to be? Yeah, although I think that I mean, these definitions change, right? I mean, you look at the Soviet Union, it was pretty damn left when it came to the economy, but it was also pretty right-wing when it came to social structures. It was, uh, you know, not a not the, uh, not the land of or free love and progressivism that some of its uh, modern day young adherents like to imagine that it was. So when I say center, I'm talking about being a radical centrist. So I'm not talking about some mushy middle with softened down versions of policies taken from the old lines, supposedly left, supposedly right parties. I'm talking about the sharp end of the arrow, getting some really aggressive policies in Canada that will help to fix some programs that we have, but also really change the direction of the country. Because I think people are kind of tired after number of years of Mr. Trudeau's uh, uh, cheerful of some, somewhat empty ways. And I think that's why Mr. Polyev is doing well in the polls. But I'd have to hope again that at some point, either he shapes up and stops spreading conspiracy theories and starts actually sharing some real solutions, or that uh, we'll be there to help try and fill that void. Because there's got to be something better than having two parties, neither of whom accept that there's such a thing as reality. I I wonder how true that is, though. I mean, Pierre Polyev won the conservative leadership with a resounding margin. I mean, greater than in, I mean, even Stephen Harper, who was the the founding uh, prime minister and founding leader of the party, he had, uh, you know, 69% of the support of members. Uh, You also have the conservatives polling right now at, you know, 40 some odd percent, which in Canada is a pretty significant margin. So so I, I just... Where is the political homelessness that you're describing of people that are uncomfortable with the conservatives as an alternative to the liberals? Well, uncomfortable with the conservatives and the liberals. That's We did a, a big poll about uh, five months, I think, ago now, and uh, over 2,000 people across the country. And the numbers came back pretty much evenly on the both liberal and Tory sides, people saying they felt their parties were, both of them, becoming more extreme, 
less representative of their values, less interested in talking about actual plans to fix the country's problems, more interested in scoring points off of their opponents. And the sentiments about that were just about even on both sides. You had stronger sort of core base support for Mr. Polyev, which makes sense because I think in the end he became leader and not to compare him too closely, but through the same sort of process that Mr. Trump became Republican nominee in the States by reaching out to a lot of people who've never been involved in politics before, which on the one hand is great, because we need to get people engaged. And you know, one of the things that kills democracies is when people give up on it. But at the same time, when you use social media and the algorithms that drive increasing divisiveness, conflict and extremism, which is literally built into the algorithm because human beings like seeing fights and battles and arguments and people being grumpy with each other, that when you fall down that rabbit hole, it's hard to know when to stop. And I assume that's how we had a, a Mr. Polyarev starting off pretty calm and reasonable a guy with years of parliamentary experience who will, I know a lot of his colleagues had great respect for him and now is out there out loonying Max Bernier talking about the World Economic Forum and vaccine conspiracies and other things like that that I just don't it's we're not going to be able to hold ourselves what, our what vaccine conspiracies has Polyev spoken about uh what fact let's go through the list he has actually officially said that regardless of the conditions under no circumstances would Canada ever introduce the measures that we saw during the COVID uh, pandemic. How is like, that a conspiracy theory, though? <laughs> let's let's see. What like, Mr. Look, let's, you can disagree with it, but if he's saying he's against vaccine mandates, I don't see how that's a conspiracy theory. Let's let's imagine a world where Mr. Polyev is prime minister, and we have an outbreak of a disease with, let's say, five times the fatality rate of uh, of COVID, ten percent. You honestly think he's not going to put a, ma a, a mandate in place? You honestly think that's an honest statement about what he intends to do if that situation comes up? Of course not. So lying to achieve political points is something that I personally am really believe is at the heart of why we're seeing populist movements rise up around the Western world, because people are mad about elites lying to them. But if you try and replace those same disconnected elites, which you know, the Liberal Party and Mr. Trudeau represent absolutely pitch perfectly, but if you try and replace them with just another set of adjustable facts that aren't necessarily grounded in reality, we're just contributing to the problem and just going to make things worse. And that's, we're going to, and he'll have a lot of supporters if he doesn't get in and follow through on some of the things he's campaigned on as opposition leader. And I think that any party that doesn't campaign in opposition the way it intends to govern is being fundamentally dishonest and contributing to degrading democracy. Political parties, I think, generally tend to be followers more than leaders on a lot of issues in general. I mean, you even mentioned that your initiative did polling. You wanted to see where Canadians were before you took a particular course, which I think is reasonable. A lot of the things you're talking about that you don't like about the Conservatives are things that there is a constituency for that is supporting the Conservatives. So is your problem not with where Canadians are rather than where the Conservative Party of Canada is? Uh, no, because there's no other option right now that if we've got this large chunk of the population that say that they've traditionally voted liberal or conservative, in some cases going back and forth, as lots of people do, or with the other smaller parties, that they're saying that there is no option that brings together people who, just to, to list a couple of examples, believe that climate change is real, want to fix it, don't believe that throwing money at problems is the way to fix it. F following down on that policy, we have a a real, not a lead anymore because we gave it up, but we have an established nuclear industry. If we're talking about a climate crisis, why aren't we aggressively building nuclear power plants and exporting them around the world so that we can make Canadian jobs, make Canadian money, help do our part to reduce carbon emissions and help other countries that contribute way more than we do to the carbon emissions to cut them down. 
I don't care what the cause of climate change is. It's happening right now. And if the basic science says that reducing carbon is going to help mitigate it, I'd rather have a slightly cooler planet where we can figure out how to handle the swimming, uh, usually nuclear power plants are you know, creating a minuscule amount of nuclear waste. All the waste in the world, I think, would fit into two Olympic sized swimming pools, all mm -hmm. of it created since the 1940s. So, you know, right there, no one's talking about that in a serious way. That's got to something that's got to be something that happens in the next mandate. If the people who are most pessimistic about climate change are wrong and that and if people believe they're right regardless of whether you do or not in the end that means that there is an opportunity to make money and an opportunity to address people's fears in something that's going to make the world better by actually reducing the the emissions and hopefully reducing the, the horrible summer that we had with the floods and the fires raging across the country let's make some money off this make the world a better place but to have a party that's fighting against the idea that we should transition to a new post-petrol economy, it's like campaigning 100 years ago against uh, transitioning to the petrol economy. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. We didn't. If you were, if you were generally someone looking to advance your country 100 plus years ago and you're saying, you know what, guys, I think the Amish have got the right idea. Let's stick with the horse and buggy. Let's avoid those fancy newfangled cars. Humans are supposed to progress and innovate. Let's put money into research and development to deal with the climate issue bring scientists to Canada, that sort of industry always has a knockoff and helps us in all kinds of other sectors. And that's just one example. Then we could talk about defense and international affairs. Yeah. Well, just on the climate, though, for a moment, if, if your belief is that this is the, the hole in Canadian politics right now, oh, no, how no, do that's you explain one, one, issue, one issue. Yeah, but, but this party and this movement and this radically centrist approach, how do you explain the 2021 election when uh, Aaron O'Toole did exactly what you're describing on climate? He came out with a conservative answer. He said climate change is real. It's a problem. And here's what we're going to do. There was going to be a, a cost associated with that. He uh, really kept a lot of the uh, conservative policies that the conservative flank of the party were trying to push forward at bay. And he completely fell short in winning the election. So how do you explain the 2021 election when the conservatives really did exactly what you're saying they needed to do? Because no one trusted Aaron O'Toole because he campaigned one way when he was campaigning to be leader in an opposition and then tried another way when he was campaigning to be prime minister. And I think Canadians are smart and they could tell that he wasn't being consistent in his messaging. So there was a there's a real fear that uh, when the conservatives are saying one thing that sounds a little bit more moderate, that they're actually talking about something much more extreme. And when you have you know, the conservative party candidate out loonying the, uh, the Bernier candidate in the Winnipeg by-election, Manitoba by-election recently. By, by opposing vaccine mandates. No, by in that case saying that Max Bernier was a tool of the globalists who went to WEF, WEF meetings and Pierre Polyev would never allow that to happen. I'm sorry to keep on going on about the WEF. Well, but but it, since you, it, since you it do, let, let's, let's, let's I mean, drill into this. Because, I'm, you know, I'm, Justin Trudeau this morning is at the UN talking about the virtues of a carbon tax. I've mm -hmm. covered the World Economic Forum. I, I've been there reporting on it. Uh, you'll oftentimes hear people talk about all the great yeah, things they need to do. On, pardon me? Did you get the microchip implanted? Are you all set? No, I no, I didn't. I, I needed to stay a day late for that. But but they talk about all of these very aggressive and I would say very radical environmental proposals. So uh, is your position that you cannot criticize that without being loony? Nope. You can absolutely criticize it. And let me let me start right now. The WEF is an expensive talking shop of rich people trying to make themselves feel relevant in a way that is, in terms of it, the way it actually impacts power politics around the world, nearly completely meaningless. Anyone really think that anyone's going to listen to what Iran has to say about women's rights or that Somalia has to say about climate change. It's a talking shop that allows occasional serious work to happen. I'm talking about the UN in this case, but most of the time is a vast waste of time and money and is controlled by dictators. 
and the WF. How is that different from what Paul Eva said about the WEF? And the what's that? How is that different from what Pierre Paul Eva said about the WEF? Because <laughs> Pierre Paul Eva goes on about globalist, which is code for anti-Semitism. Pierre Paul Eva said that he will not allow his ministers. You talk about freeing people to do what they want. Okay, hold, hold up, hold up. Are you accusing Pierre Paul Eva of being anti-Semitic? Let me finish. If I can finish my answer, I'll come back to that quite happily. Okay. That the WEF. He's not going to allow any of his ministers or government officials to attend any of the meetings of the WEF. That's his great stand against the globalist threat that's threatening all of Canada. This is this is rubbish. Canada is not broken, and we are not under the sway of some shadowy foreign tentacled octopus that's trying to uh, dominate our lives. Anything wrong in Canada, we can fix. We fixed things before. We built this country out of the, the ice and the snow. We can do it again to face these new challenges in the 21st century. What we don't need is people dog-whistling anti-Semitic tropes. And anyone who doesn't think the attacks on George Soros and the WEF don't have an anti-Semitic tinge into them needs to go and read a little bit more about anti-Semitism. So do you, do you believe, okay, let, let me be perfectly frank. Do you believe Pierre Polyev is anti-Semitic? I have no idea. I know that his party is peddling uh, tropes that have root, their roots in anti-Semitism. His Absolutely. party, which has been one of the most stalwart defenders of Israel for the entirety of its existence, you think is going down the road of anti-Semitism? Uh, I would ask you how you... The folks in the Republican Party who were similarly stalwart supporters of Israel for most of Israel's history and have now become infected with populists uh, who are largely influenced by ideas coming in from other countries, namely Russia, who are spreading a radical anti-Western agenda in the guise of traditional Western values. And unfortunately, we're seeing that picked up by elements of the Conservative Party. And it's why a lot of people don't feel comfortable with the Conservative Party. And one of the reasons Andrew Scheer didn't win in 2021, despite people being increasingly fed up with Justin Trudeau. I think I will get a lot of angry emails from Jewish supporters of the Conservative Party that don't see what you're describing there. I can, again, look at the, go and look at the tropes, the stuff that's being shared around the WF, globalism and George Soros. Go and do a tiny bit of reading produced by B'nai Bris and the other Jewish advocacy organizations talking about how this is part of the global rise in anti-Semitism. And then those folks are welcome to contact me and I'll happily debate them on the subject. Uh, just getting to the forward-looking part of your party here, as we're uh, already over time, are, are you planning to field a, a full slate of candidates in the next election? Wait, we'll see. I mean, that's my job the next year is to build up the party as the interim leader. I had some background doing that and uh, work overseas. Doing, I worked with dozens of uh, different parties in different countries. If I can get the party up and running and we're able to be prepared with a full slate, that's awesome. Our goal is on quality more than anything else. We want to try and restore the idea that becoming a member of parliament is a serious business. Make sure that we offer candidates a lot of training on how the parliamentary system works. The people who are going to try and rip them off, scam them and the public. There's a lot of things that can be done to make sure we have a better legislature rather than pretending our institutions are broken. Dominic Cardi, interim leader of Canadian Future. Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks. All right. Thank you very much for that. That uh, What a way to end the week there. But my thanks to Dominic and to Trish for coming on and for all of you tuning into the show. We will be back on Monday with more of most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.